This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here to tell you stories. So, where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. The following program is brought to you in living color on WTDR. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. Today on the Magical Mystery Tour, a special spring and summer pledge drive show featuring some of my favorite bits from past shows and a conversation with station director Chris Gruen. And during the show, please consider making a donation by going to WGDR.org and clicking on the donate button. And while you're there, you can leave a comment. So please, Go to WGDR.org and make a secure donation online. And now, on with the show. Good morning. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. My guest this morning is Miles Schertz. He is the author of 
conscious communication beyond perception. He's a couples counselor, mediator, and today we're going to be talking about relationships and good morning, Miles. Good morning, Tonio. (laughs) (laughs) It's been several months since you've been here. That's right. So I thought we'd start with a piece that I wrote for a newsletter we sent out last month. So I titled this piece, Are Relationships Important? I realized it could just as well have been titled, Who Needs a Heart If a Heart Can Be Broken? (laughs) (laughs) What a great line. (laughs) What a great question to ask ourselves. As a species, we've been asking that for a long time. Yeah, exactly. The idea came from, I'm raising three teenage daughters, and two of them are of the age when we talk a lot about their future, what they're going to be when they grow up. And what's really interesting about two of my daughters is that the concept of being a parent or having a relationship never comes up. (laughs) And And my wife and I don't push it. You know, in our judgment, it's a perfectly legitimate choice. They could be a parent or not. They could have a committed relationship or not. But it's curious that they never talk about that. And so once in a while, I'll mention it to one of my two daughters. What about having a family, you know, having a relationship? And two of them will adamantly say, no, I plan to live alone. How old are they? So the youngest is 15, middle daughter is 16. Great age. Yeah, really good age. They're very certain about the rest of their life. And they're very certain that they're going to live alone, no matter what. Which, as a parent, is kind of disconcerting. Because I, and I find myself wanting to immediately jump in and say, you're not really going to want to live alone. You're not going to be happy living alone. And then I stop myself and I just try to take in what they're saying, which is what I try to teach other people to do. (laughs) And what they're saying is, when I really listen to it, it's really hard to get along with other people. And they come to the conclusion that it's way, way easier to live alone and just not deal with people. I'm sorry. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. That's not my business. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And liberty will never perish. I cried. For I didn't think it could be true. This ugliness. This cruelty. 
this repulsiveness. It will all die out. And now, I cry for all that is beautiful. I was creating a lesson for students on Africa. We put all the problems of the world there, and I thought, let's let them solve it. I didn't want to lecture or have just book reading. I wanted to have them be immersed and learn the feeling of learning through their bodies. So I thought, well, I'd like to play games. I'll make something interactive. And so we made the game a four-foot by four-foot by four-foot plexiglass structure, and it has four plexiglass layers. There's an outer space layer with black holes and satellites and research satellites and air and space level with territorial airspaces and air forces, a ground and sea level with thousands of game pieces on it, even an undersea level with submarines and undersea mining. There are four countries around the board. Some are rich, some are poor. They have different assets, commercial and military. Each country has a cabinet. There's a prime minister, secretary of state, minister of defense, and a CFO or comptroller. There's a World Bank, arms dealers, and a United Nations. There's also a weather goddess who controls a random stock market and random weather. <laughs> That's not all. I throw them into this complex matrix with ethnic and minority tensions, chemical oils, nuclear spills, nuclear proliferation, environmental disasters, water rights disputes, breakaway republics, famine, endangered species, and global warming. If Al Gore is here, I'm going to send my fourth graders from Agner Heard and Venable School to you because they solved global warming in a week. And they've done it several times, too. There's a beautiful quote from Gandhi. He said, the fragrance always remains in the hand that gives the rose. Karma Kitchen is a restaurant that we started in Berkeley, California. And the unusual thing about it, there is no prices on the menu. At the end of the meal, guests receive a check for zero dollars. And there's a note that explains, this meal comes to you as a gift from someone who came before you. And if you wish to pay it forward, you can make a contribution for someone who comes after you. To be honest, when we started this, we didn't have any clue whether it was going to work or not. But the thing is, when you count on people to be generous, and you hold a context for that, and you create the systems for that, amazing things happen. It ignites something deep inside. So we had a volunteer once. He was a brilliant computer scientist. First time serving tables at Karma Kitchen. And he got the guest who was the most skeptical about this whole pay it forward idea. And so at the end of the meal, this guy calls the server over and gives him a $100 bill. And he says, you trust me to pay it forward? Well, here's the thing. I trust you to bring me back the right change. So this guy, he goes to the back, analytical guy. So he's running through all the permutations and combinations of what he can do. Should he split it 50-50? Should he try and calculate the average price of a meal? And then suddenly, the answer comes to him. And it came from within. He walks back to the guest, hands him the $100 bill, then opens his wallet, takes out another $20, and says, sir, here's your change. And in that moment, both the guest and the server got what Karma Kitchen was about. They experienced a mini transformation and it had nothing to do with the money. When you drop that habitual mindset of quid pro quo, you drop into the flow of giftivism. Things start to move beyond the control of your personal ego. You don't know where the gift came from, you don't know where your contribution is going to go, but you trust in the cycle of the whole. And in that context, every contribution becomes an act of profound social trust. And that kind of trust creates a web 
of resilience. Today, a special spring and summer pledge drive show featuring some of my favorite bits from past shows and a conversation with station director Chris Gruen. Please consider making a donation by going to WGDR.org and clicking on the donate button that magic little donate button, which opens up a portal to a wonderful world of giving where you can support local community radio. And while you're there, you can leave a comment. Tell us what you appreciate about the station, why you listen to it, and also you can give us some critical feedback. One of the things that's been happening since we programmers have been doing our shows remotely from home is that we aren't getting those phone calls. We're not getting feedback from all of you out there. So please go to WGDR.org and make a secure donation online. You can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly donation of smaller amounts that will make it easier and less painful for you. You can also send us a check in the mail to WGDR 123 Pitkin Road, Plainfield, Vermont 05667. And you can write us a letter telling us whatever you would like to share with us. And thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you for listening and be well. A moment on the birthing table that feels like dying. The body in labor stretches to form an impossible circle. The contractions are less than a minute apart. Wave after wave, there is barely time to breathe. The medical term? Transition. Because feels like dying is not scientific enough. (laughs) I checked. During my transition, my husband was pressing down on my sacrum to keep my body from breaking. My father was waiting behind the hospital curtain, more like hiding. But my mother was at my side. The midwife said she could see the baby's head, but all I could feel was a ring of fire. I turned to my mother and said, I can't, but she was already pouring my grandfather's prayer in my ear. Tati vanalagi bad brahmsanai. The hot winds cannot touch you. You are brave, she said. You are brave. And suddenly, I saw my grandmother standing behind my mother, and her mother behind her, and her mother behind her. A long line of women who had pushed through the fire before me. I took a breath. I pushed. My son was born. As I held him in my arms, shaking and sobbing from the rush of oxytocin that flooded my body, 
My mother was already preparing to feed me, nursing her baby as I nursed mine. My mother had never stopped laboring for me, from my birth to my son's birth. She already knew what I was just beginning to name: that love is more than a rush of feeling that happens to us if we're lucky. Love is sweet labor, fierce, bloody. Imperfect, life-giving—a choice we make over and over again. I am an American civil rights activist who has labored with communities of color since September 11th, fighting unjust policies by the state and acts of hate in the street. And in our most painful moments, in the face of the fires of injustice, I have seen labors of love deliver us. My life on the front lines of fighting hate in America has been a study in what I have come to call revolutionary love. Revolutionary love is the choice to enter into labor for others who do not look like us, for our opponents who hurt us, and for ourselves. In this era of enormous rage, when the fires are burning all around us. I believe that revolutionary love is the call of our times. Now, if you cringe when people say love is the answer, I do too. <laughs> I am a lawyer. <laughs> so let me show you how I came to see love as a force for social justice through three lessons. My first encounter with hate was in the schoolyard. I was a little girl growing up in California, where my family has lived and farmed for a century. When I was told that I would go to hell because I was not Christian, called a black dog because I was not white, I ran to my grandfather's arms. Papaji dried my tears, gave me the words of Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh faith. I see no stranger, said Nanak. I see no enemy. My grandfather taught me that I could choose to. See all the faces I meet and wonder about them, and if I wonder about them, then I will listen to their stories, even when it's hard. I will refuse to hate them, even when they hate me. I will even vow to protect them when they are in harm's way. That's what it means to be a Sikh, S-I-K-H, to walk the path of a warrior saint. He told me the story of the first Sikh woman warrior, Mai Pago. The story goes: there were 40 soldiers who abandoned their post during a great battle against an empire. They returned to a village, and this village woman turned to them and said, "You will not abandon the fight. You will return to the fire, and I will lead you." She mounted a horse. She donned a turban, and with sword in her hand and fire in her eyes, she led them where no one else would. She became the one she was waiting for. Don't abandon your post, my dear. My grandfather saw me as a warrior. I was a little girl in two long braids, but I promised. Fast forward. I'm 20 years old, watching the twin towers fall. The horror stuck in my throat, and then a face flashes on the screen—a brown man with a turban and beard—and I realize that our nation's new enemy looks like my grandfather. And these turbans, meant to represent our commitment to serve, cast us as terrorists. 
and six became targets of hate alongside our Muslim brothers and sisters. The first person killed in a hate crime after September 11th was a sick man standing in front of his gas station in Arizona. Balbir Singh Sodi was a family friend I called uncle, murdered by a man who called himself patriot. He is the first of many to have been killed. But his story, our stories, barely made the evening news. I didn't know what to do, but I had a camera. I faced the fire. I went to his widow, Jagindar Kaur. I wept with her and I asked her, "What would you like to tell the people of America?" I was expecting blame, but she looked at me and said, "Tell them thank you." Three thousand Americans came to my husband's memorial. They did not know me, but they wept with me. Tell them thank you. Thousands of people showed up because, unlike national news, the local media told Bobir Uncle's story. Stories can create the wonder that turns strangers into sisters and brothers. This was my first lesson in revolutionary love. That stories can help us see no stranger, and so my camera became my sword, my law degree became my shield, my film partner became my husband. <laughs> Didn't expect, and we became part of a generation of advocates working with communities facing their own fires. I worked inside of supermax prisons. On the shores of Guantanamo, at the sites of mass shootings, when the blood was still fresh on the ground, and every time, for 15 years, with every film, with every lawsuit, with every campaign, I thought we were making the nation safer for the next generation. And then my son was born. In a time. When hate crimes against our communities are the highest they have been since 9/11, when right-wing nationalist movements are on the rise around the globe and have captured the presidency of the United States, when white supremacists march in our streets, torches high, hoods off, and I have to reckon with the fact that my son is growing up in a country more dangerous for him. Than the one I was given, and there will be moments when I cannot protect him, when he is seen as a terrorist, just as black people in America are still seen as criminal, brown people illegal, queer and trans people immoral, indigenous people savage. Women and girls as property, and when they fail to see our bodies as some mother's child, it becomes easier to ban us, detain us, deport us, imprison us, sacrifice us for the illusion of security. I wanted to abandon my post, but I made a promise. So. I returned to the gas station where Balbir Singh Sodi was killed 15 years to the day. 
I set down a candle on the spot where he bled to death. His brother Rana turned to me and said, Nothing has changed. And I asked, Who have we not yet tried to love? We decided to call the murderer in prison. The phone rings. My heart is beating in my ears. I hear the voice of Frank Roque, a man who once said, I'm going to go out and shoot some towelheads. We should kill their children too. And every emotional impulse in me says, I can't. It becomes an act of will to wonder. Why? I ask. Why did you agree to speak with us? Frank says, I'm sorry for what happened, but I'm also sorry for all the people killed on 9-11. He fails to take responsibility. I become angry to protect Rana. But Rana is still wondering about Frank. Listening. Responds. Frank, this is the first time I'm hearing you say that you feel sorry. And Frank, Frank says, yes, I am sorry for what I did to your brother. One day, when I go to heaven to be judged by God, I will ask to see your brother, and I will hug him, and I will ask him for forgiveness. And Rana says, we already forgave you. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is freedom from hate. Because when we are free from hate, we see the ones who hurt us not as monsters, but as people who themselves are wounded, who themselves feel threatened, who don't know what else to do with their insecurity but to hurt us, to pull the trigger or cast the vote or pass the policy aimed at us. But if some of us begin to wonder about them, listen to their stories, we learn that participation in oppression comes at a cost. It cuts them off from their own capacity to love. This was my second lesson in revolutionary love. We love our opponents when we tend the wound in them. Tending to the wound is not healing them. Only they can do that. Just tending to it allows us to see our opponents, the terrorist, the fanatic, the demagogue. They've been radicalized by cultures and policies that we together can change. I looked back on all of our campaigns, and I realized that any time we fought bad actors, we didn't change very much. But when we chose to wield our swords and shields, to battle bad systems, that's when we saw change. I have worked on campaigns that released hundreds of people out of solitary confinement, reformed a corrupt police department, changed federal hate crimes policy. The choice to love our opponents is moral and pragmatic, and it opens up the previously unimaginable possibility of reconciliation. 
But remember, it took 15 years to make that phone call. I had to tend to my own rage and grief first. Loving our opponents requires us to love ourselves. Gandhi, King, Mandela, they taught a lot about how to love others and opponents. They didn't talk a lot about loving ourselves. This is a feminist intervention. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Because for too long have women and women of color been told to suppress their rage, suppress their grief in the name of love and forgiveness. But when we suppress our rage, that's when it hardens into hate directed outward, but usually directed inward. But mothering has taught me that all of our emotions are necessary. Joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger is the force that protects it. This was my third lesson in revolutionary love. We love ourselves when we breathe through the fire of pain and refuse to let it harden into hate. That's why I believe that love must be practiced in all three directions to be revolutionary. Loving just ourselves feels good, but <laughs> is narcissism. <laughs> Loving only our opponents is self-loathing. Loving only others is ineffective. This is where a lot of our movements live right now. We need to practice all three forms of love. And so, how do we practice it? Number one, <laughs> in order to love others, see no stranger. We can train our eyes to look upon strangers on the street, on the subway, on the screen, and say in our minds, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. And when we say this, what we are saying is, You are a part of me I do not yet know. I choose to wonder about you. I will listen for your stories and pick up a sword when you are in harm's way. Number two, in order to love our opponents, tend the wound. Can you see the wound in the ones who hurt you? Can you wonder even about them? And if this question sends panic through your body, then your most revolutionary act is to wonder, listen, and respond to your own needs. Number three, in order to love ourselves, breathe and push. When we are pushing into the fires in our bodies or the fires in the world, we need to be breathing together in order to be pushing together. How are you breathing each day? Who are you breathing with? Because when executive orders and news of violence hits our bodies hard, sometimes less than a minute apart, it feels like dying. In those moments, my son places his hand on my cheek and says, Dance time, mommy. <laughs> and we dance. <laughs> In the darkness, we breathe and we dance. <laughs> 
Our family becomes a pocket of revolutionary love. Our joy is an act of moral resistance. How are you protecting your joy each day? Because in joy, we see even darkness with new eyes. And so, the mother in me asks, what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our future is not dead, but still waiting to be born? What if this is our great transition? Remember the wisdom of the midwife. Breathe, she says, and then push. (laughs) Because if we don't push, we will die. If we don't breathe, we will die. Revolutionary love requires us to breathe and push through the fire with a warrior's heart and a saint's eyes so that one day, one day you will see my son as your own and protect him when I am not there. You will tend to the wound in the ones who want to hurt him. You will teach him how to love himself because you love yourself. You will whisper in his ear, as I whisper in yours, you are brave. You are brave. Thank you. (laughs) That was Valerie Kaur, and this would be a great time for you to go online to WGDR.org and make a secure donation to support WGDR, local community radio. It's our spring-summer pledge drive, and we're trying to raise $30,000 by the end of June, and we can only do that with your support. So please, go online to wgdr.org right now and make a secure donation. You can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly donation in smaller amounts. Or you can always send us a check in the mail to WGDR, 123 Pitkin Road, Plainfield, Vermont, 05667. And thank you so much. Up next, a conversation with WGDR station director, Chris Gruen. Hey, Chris. What's going on? Not a lot. How are you doing? Um, I'm okay. I'm okay. Just uh, I'm logging gifts right now for the fundraiser. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So what I was thinking of was it was just talking to you about the fundraiser. Uh-huh. So is there a theme for this? Is there a theme? Yeah. You know, we didn't put together a theme. Our last fundraiser, the theme was radio that reaches for the heart of the matter, trying to highlight the fact that WGDR is able to and, and does dive deeper into news and information through its public affairs and Pacifica news programs than any other radio station in Vermont because it's citizen reporting and it's kind of the journalism's coming from a freer place. And that's what we were highlighting through our messaging of radio that reaches for the heart of matter. Plus, the reporting has this community love in it. There's love in this reporting. It's it's like a deep, genuine caring. Well, it's also very personal. Very personal and, and looked at from so many different perspectives because we're dealing with 50 citizen reporters, you know, 
who are driven by their own personal interest in, in So you're talking about the last pledge drive? Yeah. And this time we're all working from home yeah. and in a way we're like normally we go into the radio station and we have this kind of tactile relationship to this radio station that our listeners you know, this is an interesting thing about this radio experience because our listeners experience the radio station remotely and we usually experience it directly and now we are all experiencing yep. it remotely as well. Yep. So that's that's a really interesting aspect of this. That it is. Well, I was going to say that my storyline in, in my outreach, my appeal for this campaign focused on WGDR community's response, radio response during the pandemic, the startup of the pandemic. So that really is the theme this time is WGDR didn't miss a beat, you know, during this challenging time and bringing familiar voices during an unfamiliar time. Well, we did respond very quickly and that was really impressive. But now Carl's program on the pandemic, the weekly, Mm -hmm. daily weekly thing, Mm -hmm has ended. So we're now entering into another phase. So mm-hmm. so talk about that as well. Um, my thinking about that is rather internal. I'm personally focused now on trying to get our community back into the studio safely so that they can easily utilize the phones again and invite listeners to call and share their experience and questions and stories um during the during the special reporting that carl was doing management had for the first time in a long time a participatory you know project in putting together news and reporting and for us as management our programming usually stops at you know planning the grid with our volunteers we don't we don't tell our volunteers what to do. So, you know, Carl was working with us on his thinking, and he was very autonomous and did most of his own thinking, but we were thinking a little bit more like hosts with him around that work. So our hands are back off the controls as far as news and information goes, and we are just hoping to make it easier for all of our volunteers to get back into the actual physical space of the station so they can do the best work they can. There's some folks who feel very much unable to do their shows not being at the station. And, of course, we understand that, but we have no choice in the rules and parameters that we're given to get people back in. So I guess that's my thinking on that right now. It's kind of internally focused. Yeah, and I imagine that you you still don't know what the best approach is at this point or, or even the timetable necessarily. That's right. I mean... As far as best approach, we're working with state-produced guidelines on how to return to the physical space, a nonprofit returning to its physical space. And if we are to follow those guidelines, which we right now are mandated to follow, we can't, given the staff that we have, we can't, we don't have the capacity to oversee that process. Right. Um, I talked to Dave last week, and he was saying, the idea of him being there at the station when everybody comes in with one of those thermometers and aiming them at people's foreheads (laughs) when they come in and then when they leave and and then going in and wiping down the studio. And he was like, oh, 
what a nightmare that yeah. would be. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an unpleasant idea, number one. Number two, it requires so much of someone's time. I mean, we are probably going to see some version of that, but the only way that we could start that process is to invite one single block of programmers back into the studio because we can't, you know, if we were to invite programmers in general back, that would require somebody on site from, you know, 7 in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> without leaving physically, so every day of the week. Right, that that also makes me think of Eben, because he, exactly. he so wants to be in there doing it live, and exactly. he does a, an overnight show. So, well, I guess Dave could be in there when he first comes in, and then Dave could leave. Well, no, that, but <laughs> if we're inviting Eben, that means we're inviting everyone, because that would be an allowance for music programmers who aren't even really, who aren't using phones. They're just wanting to work the air studio because it's a it's a more technically endowed space and and as we totally get that like if we're inviting Eben that means we're inviting everybody and so Dave would be there impossibly you Impos- know, it'd be impossible right. for, for any Dave me anybody to be there that many hours it'd be illegal it would be against union guidelines everything so we have to figure out a different way. And it may just be that we're waiting for a loosening of the parameters on returning. And everything is getting gradually is. more and more. It is. I have a feeling that the requirements for people returning to physical spaces for nonprofits will change shortly. And there might be a way that we can allow volunteers to help each other document their health as they come and go. That might become a possibility, too. It doesn't have to be. Right now, it requires a health officer and a organization, an administrative person, to document that information. Mm-hmm. So it would require the staff. So that, I'm hoping, will shift and become a little bit less demanding, and, and we can utilize volunteers to work with each other in the future. Mm-hmm. If Vermont continues to track and document such low numbers of new cases were remarkably healthy compared to the states around us. So, And also, we're only having one person at the station at a time. Right. Which is um, something that can dramatically help in this whole distancing equation. Yeah, it can. It can. Again, it requires a cleaning of the space between shifts. So as we had hoped to bring back a single block, the public affairs block 9 till 10.30, that would have allowed us to have almost a full day, full 24 hours between people in the space, which felt very doable. But when we started to read deeply into the state's requirements for that, there was extensive administrative responsibilities that we weren't aware of yet. So I'm not thinking it's going to be a, a long, long time. We're hoping that it's, you know, several weeks at most before we see the return of at least that block of programmers. But we have to figure out how to do it in a way that we can afford and <laughs> hum- also humanely feel, and financially. Yeah, and also feel good about it in terms of honoring people's safety and well-being. Exactly. That's that's number one, mm-hmm. of course, and. You know, why some folks might think, might ask, well, you know, VPR has people in its studios. It's a very different thing to oversee a professional radio station than it is a community radio station where... Where it's more like herding cats. Yeah. 
Now you said it, not me. <laughs> no, I understand. I mean, it's a very different kind of group, a professional staff yeah. versus a volunteer staff. It's so incredibly different. I mean, I've, I've experienced it myself firsthand, and you can go online to wgdr.org and make a secure donation and leave a comment and help us to raise $30,000. And again, thank you so much. Another thing is I'm, I'm really curious how our listeners feel about listening to the programming being produced remotely versus the way it was before in the studios and how, how satisfied they are with, with the quality and if they've, they have any comments that you've heard. And also I, I'm actually getting to like doing my show remotely. Well, isn't that interesting? I yeah. mean, as you were describing the change from listener being remote, host being on site in the in the radio studio, to both being remote and and host being at home, I have a feeling that hosts are having an experience of home becoming station for them and like a transformative space and you know a, an outreach like doing radio from home, it, it kind of transforms the home in a way, I bet. I, I'd like to know what you had to say about that, but I'm glad to hear that you say it feels positive. And the only thing that I've heard from listeners is positive and, and gratitude. They haven't talked about quality of any kind of diminished quality of the programming coming from home, and that could just be because everyone's wanting to be really understanding Nothing there isn't in some cases. Of course, you know, our WGDH signal continues to vex us with dropouts that we're just, you know, 24-7 trying to route out. But that's a very different issue. But just to recognize that listeners up there are still suffering from a compromised sound quality and very much aware of that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about any kind of changing quality from our volunteer hosts producing from home. And I haven't heard any negatives from listeners the only listener response has been, you know, thank you so much for staying on the air. Because mm. I think that, you know, WGDR's listeners, for the most part, the ones that we hear from the most, are folks who have a bit of understanding, I think, more than the regular radio listener of what it takes to do a radio show. Because they're interested in the idea that these are volunteers in the community learning how to do radio. And so they appreciate the technical lift of their neighbors doing this, and they've just been really amazed that people are keep it staying on the air. I'm I'm really amazed and impressed as well. I've yeah. been listening to quite a few of the shows, and I think overall the quality has been excellent. Yeah. I'm really impressed. Yeah. I mean, there are a few cases where the microphone sound is a bit tinny, yep. or else the volume level is particularly low, but those are things that, that people can adjust. Yeah, they're, they're learning, and, and I've heard from several programmers about how excited they are about their new microphone that they recently purchased to make their show better, and mm -hmm. you know, our programmers are, I think they are learning how to do this, and it's exciting for them, and I think that we might see a lot of programmers just choose this mode producing from home even when they can get back into the air studios. I'm thinking of that myself because one of one of the it's other things environmental. that exactly that's my that's where I was going to go yeah. is that I really like that I'm generally going into town yep. like once every 2 weeks or once a week at most yep. and 
And I like that. Yeah, yeah. For you, for example, it's an almost an hour round trip to get to the station. Yeah, it and, is. And yeah, I mean, this is a major piece of what the world is finding in general is there's an environmental answer here in, in learning how to be remote for everything. But yeah, there's other issues that come up with that. You know, I, I haven't gone through the entire campaign yet here and just want to recognize that often our listeners communicate with us during our campaigns. So still looking forward to hearing from people on their listening experience. So how can we encourage, you know, people to give us more feedback and comments? Well, you know, the emails for David Furland and I and and Carl Ettenhauer, but it's really myself and David who folks would want to contact, that's available on the website. And they can always hand write a letter and send it to 123 Pitkin Road, you know, WGDR 123 Pitkin Road in Plainfield, 05667. And so with this pledge drive, when they go to the website, there's a donate button, mm-hmm. which... Um, they can t- also leave comments with their donation. Thank you for pointing that out. Like yes, when at, you the bottom, give, at the bottom of that yep. donation form is, is a comment box. That's right. Yes. And I get a... And I, that's actually how I receive most of my feedback during the campaign is when someone donates. Most of those comments are, thank you so much for what you do. We love you. But sometimes they are half a page or a page long with very detailed ideas. And Ooh, we, I would love. I we would, track all I would of so that. I would so love to get so much of that from, yep. from as many yep. listeners as possible. Yep. It's so very good for us to receive that. And so. I, hope, I hope they don't feel like they're wasting our time by writing to us. Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. Exactly. That's how I feel. And I'm glad to hear that you feel that way too. Oh yeah. No, that's gold for us. And we we track all of their comments and keep it on file so that we can share it with programmers, especially when some feedback is, is directed at our programmers in particular, and those that feedback goes to those programmers. Listeners should know. I know sometimes they're wondering if that information ever reaches the people they're speaking to through exactly through their gift yeah. comment yeah. box. But we um, really look for that. I yeah, mean, we look for that. We crave we, that. We get that feedback to those people. So here's a more direct question. Why should people donate now? Well... A donation now is as important as it's been in the past uh, few years. I say that because in the past few years, WGDR has shifted away from licensee funding. That means Goddard is no longer directly putting funding toward the radio station, but indirectly still funding it through support, um, administrative support and you know, allowing us to be physically at the college, things like that. But the loss of the college's funding is is very significant. And have our and bills the, gone down at all? No, there's no change in cost. Uh, bills have gone up, if, if anything, because we have to continually stay with current technology, and that means capital investment and, and equipment investment, and otherwise bills have stayed the same. But So we still need to raise funds as much as ever, if not more. Yes, more than before, because we have to make up that large loss from the licensee funding. Mm-hmm. And But it's very, I, I'm trying to figure out the best way to get word out to our listeners who are interested and who want to know about this, that we are still in the CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We're still in their community service grant program. We were slated to have to leave that granting program uh, a year and a half ago, 
And the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has worked really hard to adjust its minimum requirements for eligibility to keep a lot of small rural public community stations like ours in the program. And we were racing a deadline of trying to uh, remain eligible at the old you know, minimum levels um, until they made the, those adjustments, and we we made it to the finish line ahead of being removed. So they made those adjustments and were allowed to stay in a little bit longer. Now, every year is a question mark, but that's a major lifeline grant for WGDR. We get about $70,000 a year from them through that program, and that would be the second major funding source that we would lose after Goddard if we are out of that program. But I, I know a lot of listeners have been following that story and wondering if GDR is still in or if it's out. Currently, we are still in, but every year the CPB is watching our level of fundraising. Every donation we get from our listeners counts towards our eligibility to stay in that program. So that is another major reason to give. Like, the, uh, folks should know that every dollar they give is essentially matched by the CBB. They get, the CBB gives us that grant if our listeners give us theirs. So there's that. And then there's another major story here, which is because we stayed in the CSG program, we were eligible for stimulus funding that came from the federal government through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to the tune of about $110,000, which is, of course, an enormous amount of money for WGDR. So, and that, that's about the amount that's slightly more than Goddard used to give us every year. Annually, yeah. So we're living year to year at GDR financially right now, even season to season in a sense, but we're not faltering at this point. We're able to put a little bit of money in the bank for the station's needs, no matter what they are, whether they're improvements or considering a change in, you know, if, if need be a change in location, that's a major expense for the radio station, and it would sink the radio station if it didn't have the funding to do so. So having the stimulus money on reserve is a very positive thing for WGDR, and we are expecting our listeners to have a harder time donating right now due to what's going on with COVID. So that's what this money is really for, is to secure little stations like ours during this challenging time. But only stations that stayed in that CSG program and with the CPB were able to get that money. And so it was a remarkable outcome for WGDR as we did not anticipate being able to stay in the program a year or so ago. So what is the future of GDR look like right now, all things considered? You know, best case scenario, Goddard continues to strengthen out of this challenging time for itself. And we're able to stay with our licensee and improve our signal strength, which has been compromised. And we're trying to figure this out with WGDH. So that's what we're going to focus on first. And then second, return to strategic programming and work on getting the word out about the kind of unique offering that GDR brings to Central Vermont. So we're talking about, you know... Spreading the word. Spreading the word, promotion of that stuff and campaigns to let folks in this area who we, you know, otherwise might have reached years ago, let know about what's going on at GDR. That's really the next thing to do. While we're having this conversation... You can go online to WGDR.org and make a secure donation and leave a comment.
anytime during the show and anytime during this week and until the end of June and help us to raise $30,000. And again, thank you so much. So are there any other things on the horizon for WGDR projects in the works or things that that are yeah, happening? Yeah, we are halfway through a physical space reorg, um, meaning moving into a better space for our air studio, better space for production, two production studios rather than one. We feel that that's going to be possible now with some of this stimulus money. The, the stimulus funding should not be used for business as usual upkeep of the station. That really requires listener funding and we are responsible for continuing to raise money with our listenership to keep GDR going week to week, paying for staffing, things like that. But the stimulus money is there for as a rainy day fund and for necessary improvements to keep GDR vital. So with some, hopefully a very small amount of that stimulus money, we're going to finish that air studio and bring in some improvements, a better phone bank for our volunteers to use, a space that can really host forums, and the like. So that's definitely part of our vision You know, over the next six months, I would say. Other than that, I mean, we really want to focus on getting our signal strong. 91.1, of course, is fine, is very strong. But our WGDH signal, as listeners up there know, has been inconsistent, and it pains us greatly that we're not delivering you know, a consistent quality product to our northern listeners that's got to end. So that's where we're really focused first. So how can our listeners support the station these days? Well, two very, very good ways is giving what they can financially. And when they do, they give us their feedback on their experience of WGR, WGDH as listeners. But then also spreading the word about the station and why it's important. I mean, sometimes folks feel that their isolated testimonials or their love of WGDR is not enough, you know, being one voice, but they bring it up at a dinner party and eight new people know about this really amazing, amazing value for this area. Not every area has a vital community radio station in it. You know, WGDR is the biggest community radio station in Vermont. When you look at the number of people programming, you look at the size of its budget, you look at the programs on and off air that it provides the area. And that makes it one of these radio stations that are known nationally for the value that it brings to a very, you know, a, a very special corner of the country. Vermont is, you know, inspiring for a lot of places. And you mentioned the value of having people in the community mentioning the station and spreading the word. It also gets compounded when people hear it from different people. Yeah. And gets reinforced. And I know for me... That's how things sink into my awareness. Mm. It's when I start hearing it from different people around me. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that that happens a fair amount yeah. around here. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think people should really make a concerted effort to share WGDR with other people because there's such an incredible range of programming here at the station that you absolutely will not find anywhere else. And I think there genuinely is something here for everyone. It comes from the purest desire to communicate. What comes over WGDR's airwaves is coming from a very pure desire to communicate 
there's no commercialism in any sense in our programming. Uh, it's just not allowed, and it's not part of the mission. So that's what makes it the most unique kind of radio. And GDR is a real community radio station. One of my favorite things is to accidentally overhear a conversation out in the community about WGDR, the two people at the co-op talking about having heard the subject of their conversation on WGDR. Or, you know, even my wife will, you know, completely incidentally be talking to somebody else nearby and she'll say, oh yeah, I heard on WGDR when I went into work this morning. And she doesn't even realize how much that means to me, but I hear that. So yeah, community members passing around the information is a very different animal than folks hearing about it through my ads, you know, in local papers or even on posters. Still the same programming, uh, the testimonial is completely pure when it's coming from from you, the listener, you know. And these days that might have to happen over the telephone or through email or, or social media. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strange and crazy world we're living in these oh, days. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Science fiction. Yeah, it feels like the world that I'm living in has taken on the qualities of various science fiction movies and stories that, that I've encountered in my life yep. in, in the distant past. Yeah, it's, it's a very different experience looking at it personally through our lens our age group and as you're saying like wow this is starting to match up with those movies and books that we read about the future um but then it's a very different experience looking at it through the eyes of your children if your parents and and you're watching your youngsters watch this and what's remarkable to me is that it it doesn't shock them the way that it shocks us what's shocking to us is that we always just thought it was fiction to them it's reality and they don't react to it with the same. How are, how are your kids responding to this? What what are their thoughts and feelings, or what are they sharing with you about this? You know, I think that there's an element of excitement around it to see a moment come to its head, and it depends on the age group. You know, I've got mm-hmm. a 14, about to be 15-year-old, and I've got a 9, about to be 10-year-old. 9-year-old is not trying to give much of her attention to what's going on. She wants to stay in her on-the-ground, down-to-earth, day-to-day routine. It's a little bit too much, I think, to try and have a, an opinion about for that age group. But the 14-year-old is very engaged, and she is watching carefully. And there's, you know, she's, she wants a life where she can still go out in the world. I mean, she's one of these young people who are looking forward to having worldly experiences and there's this threat that that's going to be taken away from her both environmentally and because of her experience of of the pandemic now being removed from society she feels as though her future is being taken away from her now with these protests going on there's this different kind of energy in her like a spark almost like a hopeful spark you know and she's angry at the system the response of a lot of you know, cities, law enforcement, and, and she feels, you know, horribly disconnected from the administration, and there's life in that. And so I think that <laughs> it's interesting. It's like while the pandemic put this wet blanket on everything and just kind of snuffed out everyone's energy as far as uh, social, you know, 
reality. The situation with protests around George Floyd's death and, and systemic racism is kind of bringing young people back to the table and back to life because it demands facing the specter of the pandemic and going out in the street. And I think that, you know, in a way, what hasn't been talked about very much is that the, the protests are also a way for people to be together. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it bypasses the fear of COVID for the requirement of protest and, and rebellion. And it reminds us that there is a world out there. There's a, yeah, exactly. there's a real world Physical out there, place. and there are yeah. real worldly concerns that yep. need to be addressed. Yeah. 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 And all the smashing and the burning and the looting is twofold, you know, because on, as a secondary, uh, second-tier initiative, it's like touching the world again, you know, and because it's become so painful to be pulled out of the physical world, the return is also, you know, very painful. And it's an expression of rage, but I think it's also an expression of desperate desire to connect. What's well, really interesting, I'm going to be doing an interview with a black Tibetan Buddhist lama who wrote Love and Rage. And I'm so looking forward to doing this interview. It's probably going to be sometime within the next month. Right now, with the demonstrations going on, this subject of love and rage is so, so Mm. present. Mm -hmm. Because the the rage is also about love. It's about, you know, we've got to learn to honor and respect and love each other with all of our differences and come together and recognize that we genuinely are all in this together. As much as that sounds like a cliche and how resentful people are that it isn't panning out in an equitable way in the world, we are actually in this together. And the rage is so understandable. I experienced the rage, too, and listening to you talk about your eldest daughter and her response and her budding social awareness, that is so heartening to me. Mm. There's life, there's energy in rage, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't want to get stuck there because right. it's a chaotic energy, but it definitely, it's like when you light, first light a match, there's that, you know, there's that firing where it first starts to burn and sets the stick aflame that's kind of like rage it's like there's the ignition but exactly. then it steadies the energy to, to return to a, a productive and living well that's the choice that we have is are we going to use that match to ignite something useful and constructive or, or are we going to use it for something destructive yeah so the choice is always in our hands yeah you know as uh, Bjork sang it's in our hands yeah this whole thing everything is is always in our hands, and it's in all of our hands together at once. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for uh, for checking in. Hey, thank you for uh, joining me. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, uh, good luck with everything for all of us, and um, be well. Yeah, you too, Tonio. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that was WGDR station director Chris Gruen. Today on the Magical Mystery Tour, a special spring and summer pledge drive show. Please consider making a donation by going to WGDR.org and clicking on the Donate button. And while you're there, you can leave a comment. So please, go to WGDR.org and make a secure donation online. And now, on with the show. I remember when 
Mystified, the myths they fly. Tell lies, put an eye with the tell eye vision. Subliminal programs will hold hands in prison. Hold hands with the ism that truly ain't him. Paint him, paint him, decimate him. Reduced to a fraction of flesh and skin, we sing. With him for the culture, scope precisely. Devilish encryption could never subscribe. We word power and sound moving the molecule. Wanna fool, run a fool with many degrees. Pepper decree. Heat for reason, heat the heathens, pagans flee But these streets are paved with thievery False prophets, false hope, false believery Sometimes you need to blaze up a fire Let it be known for the record, your honor Sometimes you need to blaze up a fire 
and let's form the battalion and stop battling for love of medallions. Covered blood laid up in an ambulance. Can't you see we're just Africans with new garments on but no hearts? Mannequins, why Freemasons dance with the Vatican's speech? I'm so tired of imagining, so ready for riots to start happening. You and Obama, I'm not backing him. Sickening, they drop bombs, they sing hymns in church like God's gone. And these devils really think they're gonna win, but they're wrong, car. I stand strong on every song and pardon what if you don't know I am the unknown man with unknown plans right in my future with no hands unplug your mind from the enemies programs live life with benignity Famalam, stop the killing spree do you want to make money or history cause honestly hand on my heart no man in power has ever done a thing for me it's not a mystery it's liberties blaze up a fire till the victory go tell the judge and the jury don't know the half of the story Say if I break it down slowly They can really see what I'm coming from I had this mark before them come Live it down, I never done When they showed up, I never run Stood firm for the Kanam drum song I want everybody to listen to. It's talking about love and it's talking about hate. You know, I think the only way we're going to do away with hate is to get so much love going around till it just won't be any more hate. There's so much hate going on today on the right and on the left. You see, we hate our brothers, yes we do, and we hate our own selves. There's even hate going on today Between the young folks and the old Can't you see all this hate is really eating up our very soul That's why I'm singing now next little verse and if you feel like it sing along and if you don't want to sing along maybe you can clap your hands the good book says to love your enemy but we don't comprehend tell me how can you love your enemy when you hate your fellow man you see love's got the all time greatest power darkest hour
running dry And life was like a comet Falling from the sky I woke so frightened In the dawning oh so clear How precious is the time We have here Are we not wise enough To give all we are Surely we're bright enough To outshine the stars But humankind gets so lost In finding its way When we have a chance To make a difference to our dying day magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time take good care of yourselves and each other and go to wgdr.org and make a donation to support this radio station we have a chance to make
Hey.